Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, the show where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors, hoping to create a relevant dialogue, get learnings, and contribute back positively to the startup ecosystem in Asia. I've been extremely busy for the past three weeks. I have been producing content consistently, just need to edit everything this week and release it for you guys. During the past two weeks, I helped my friends at Momentum Works run a VC simulation for the OCBC graduates and did quite a few mentoring sessions with the co-working space found eight partners from the Scape Fellowship founders and the Singapore Tourism Board. The next episode will actually be a fireside chat I did with the Singapore Tourism Board Accelerator, which was a high-level summary of the learnings we had from the past 11 founders and entrepreneurs we interviewed here on EOA. However, a few weeks back, I got a chance to do our first remote interview with my good friend Sik Ho Young. Sik is one of the smartest guys I know and has transformed into an amazing founder. In this episode, we will talk about his experiences from studying in America, how he broke into the startup scene. Uh, throughout the episode, we'll mention unit economics across his experiences with Rideshare and Easy Taxi, from his brief stint with Food Panda, his experiences with Happy Fresh, the grocery delivery company that was invested by Grab, and how he was able to make Loud Move profitable in less than a year. We also talk about what it would be like to replicate a business like Happy Fresh in current times in terms of how much money and resources you would need. Lastly, we discuss what the VC scene in Singapore is really like. Before we begin, the quality of this episode will be much lower as usual as this was the first remote testing I've done. I messed up the sound settings on my side, so it might sound like I'm yelling at Sikho quite a bit. And Sikho had really, really poor internet connection from his hometown in Malacca, so some parts might seem disjoint after being edited. The good news is we've learned a lot on how to run remote interviews and hope to have much higher quality in the future. However, everything Sikho had to share is very relevant to today's startup world. Let's dive in and learn. All right, uh, Sikho, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we are actually testing uh, the first um, recorded remote session. Uh, I uh, recently I saw you in person. Uh, well, it's like last week, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we had a really good discussion for three or four hours. Uh, we were supposed to meet again. Uh, but unfortunately, Malaysia is having a second wave of COVID. We're recording more than 500 cases a day, and uh, you kind of got stuck down in uh, Malacca because they're prevent restricting state-to-state -state, um, movement, I guess, right? Um, yeah, so uh, we'll see if this kind of works out, the quality, make sure everything's okay. Uh, first time we're going to be doing video where I think it will go out. I have a lot of raw footage of uh, the past sessions, but um, never recorded it in this kind of format using a different kind of product. Uh, so I guess briefly, you know, Sicko, we were ex-colleagues at one point, right? We're part of the Easy Taxi Gang, uh, part of Rideshare History. Um, back then, you focused mostly on business intelligence, right? Um, and then after you had left Easy Taxi, your career really took off. So you interestingly started off with uh, content for Happy Fresh. And Happy Fresh was, of course, the grocery, online grocery delivery that was eventually acquired by Grab. Uh, and then, of course, no, uh, that's, that's not true. <laughs> invested? Yeah, I think yes, invested, yes. So, but anyway, <laughs> we, we know Grab is involved with Happy Fresh somehow. Uh, it's on their main platform, the ecosystem. They're pushing it really hard. We know there's a lot of growth from the pandemic. Uh, but after what, more than two years, right? You, or around two years, um, uh, I, I introduced you to an opportunity with Lala Move, right? So you were the the, the managing director or launch, you know uh, head of the country for Malaysia, 
uh, basically you had to kickstart off everything from scratch and build up Lala Move from the ground up. And uh, you were very successful. By the time you had left the opportunity, uh, you know, it was pretty much a profitable company, um, you know, give or take. Uh, then uh, you decided to jump to Singapore with Razor Food, which is this kind of, uh, we discussed is, uh, I, I don't know, how, how would you say, what, like in a short way, what is Razor Food? Food Razor. <laughs> Yeah, for Razor, food Razor, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Food Razor is basically a, a SaaS company for uh, like restaurants. So it helps restaurants to digitalize the invoices. Uh, in short, that's what it what, what Food Razor does. And yeah, it's basically just helping uh, Singapore restaurants. So essentially, very interestingly enough, like while it's either direct or indirect, a lot of your experience is related to food, right? Happy Fresh's groceries, uh, Lala Move, you know, a big portion of the revenue is probably coming from food deliveries, depending on the country. And of course, then food raiser. Um, and then I guess lastly, you know, your, your more, more recent um, ventures more related to, I guess, uh, at the core traditional business, but you're trying to introduce technology and make it more scalable in, in the laundry space, right? Yeah. So that's just a, a brief introduction. Uh, and uh, you started off, uh, your education back in the University of Wisconsin in the U.S., right? Yes. <laughs> you, you, would be, you would actually be surprised because I actually have some fans from who are actually from Wisconsin. <laughs> so we uh, were kind of happy when I told them uh, you, you know, you'd be uh, on the show. Okay. Yeah. Well, how was your experience in Wisconsin oh. in the, the land of American cheese and dairy? What, what was it like? Yeah, Wisconsin is definitely a, a very pleasant experience in general. Um, for me, it was quite different because it was kind of like my first country that I go out of mm. uh, besides Singapore. So at that time, it was basically the first country that I, I went out. Mm. So it was quite friendly in a sense. Uh, like what you say, cheese and stuff. <laughs> One thing about Wisconsin is it's it's very underrated in some sense. Uh, okay. There's actually a lot of uh, people out there. I think I disconnected for a little bit. Yeah, so I think the connection uh, in in Malacca is a little bit uh, trippy. Yeah, it's not it's not good at all. We were talking about how Wisconsin was very underrated. Um, actually, I think you know I think you're right in terms of I don't know about quality of life, but I know that anyone who I've met studied at wisconsin in asia they all tend to be extremely smart people uh very kind of engineering mindset uh very smart analytical and i guess that's what wisconsin is known for producing good engineering uh, i'm not too sure about engineering part but uh oh, okay. i study in the business school so i so uh there was one article recently that says that that actually says that uh that the uni that the wisconsin school of business actually has the most oh, really? uh, okay. CEO in the Fortune 500 company. So, yeah, yeah. So that's why it, it's underrated in, in some sense because <laughs> no, nobody really. Would yeah. So, what, what are they doing right then? And, like, why yeah. are they producing an inordinate amount of uh, power CEOs? I don't know. I think it really just go back to the, the education part, like really how to run a okay. company. Rather than, I think, a lot of business school where they focus a lot on, like, networking, really? you know, knowing people, uh, I think Wisconsin is just like, hey, hey let's just okay. make sure you get a so, technical part. So, uh, it's settled, like, you, you, like, you so learn it's all very, very hands-on, essentially. Yeah. Uh, after uh, graduating, you had your first experience in consulting. I guess you left America, or did you stay in America for a little bit? Um, I did not <laughs> stay in America, so I come back right after graduation. Um, but I did join an American consulting company. Uh, it's a 
specifically in benefits consulting. So uh, what I want make sure that benefit schemes to the employees. Um, we do enough, like we, we evaluate uh, the benefit scheme so that they don't bankrupt themselves. Okay. Essentially. Yeah. So, the so uh, yeah, that's what, that's what it, is. it was basically Tower Watson, a uh, pretty huge global company. Uh, and you're, you were employed as consultant for benefit schemes for, I guess, pensions, right? In, in the U.S. it's called pension, uh, but it, I think in this side of the world, we focus more on okay, the yeah. part. Uh, not so much pension. I guess it's some, somehow related. There's a little yeah. bit of pension, but mostly uh, yeah. it's somehow related. Um, so back then, what, what did you think your career would look like? Like, wh why did you take this job? And then what were you thinking this would lead to? Yeah, so... Well, well, I studied actuarial science, right? So uh, we basically, that's what we do, right? Benefits, insurance. Um, so naturally, going into benefit consulting, it's one of the many career paths that I could have taken, right? Mm. Uh, and which I took. Um, I think it happens to be just uh, one of the company that I really enjoy during the whole interview process. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I just get to talk talk to people, right? Yeah. So yes, when I joined, of course, I envisioned myself to go through the the standard actuarial path, you know, taking actuarial okay. exams, okay. becoming a, a a fellow in the in the society yeah. of actuary, just like how a lot a lot of actuary yeah. does. So that was how I first uh, envisioned the whole my whole career would be. <laughs> uh, but of course, I think things got different. Actually, like actuary science is. Uh, from my understanding, growing up in the U.S., it's not as popular as a, a degree program as, say, the U.K., right? It was popular in Asia during that time. So a lot of parents yeah, were sending yeah. their kids to take agrarian <laughs> yeah. science. Um, that's why I think even in, in the U.S., we see a lot of like Malaysian, Malaysian students taking up these courses. Not so much. There is a lot of American students there, but like, Relatively speaking, there's a lot of uh, Asians. Malaysians. Yeah. Well. I mean, it's it's Asians a very general, intensive yeah. course, a combination of like, uh, you know, heavy statistics and math and economics and finance, uh, a lot of calculations, right? Because I think initially it's mostly heavily used by insurance companies. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty stable career, I guess. That's why typically Asian parents kind of wanted to send their kids down that path. Um, yes, it's a very stress level is low. Uh, the pay is good. So yes, a lot of people want to. Mm. So then you basically thought you were going to be an actuary, you know, a, a fellow member. Uh, you're going to be in this industry for a long time. Then uh, back in 2014, you end up jumping to join the rideshare craze back in Malaysia, right? Um, how did you kind of... Well, it wasn't too much of a transition. It's more, uh, it started more of a push factor rather than a pull factor. Um, so throughout my my first, I would say, job as a actuarial consultant in, in some sense, yeah. uh, I realized that I don't get to use what I've learned. Okay. Right. You know, all these years of, of studying, all the math that I've done, uh, when I get into the real job, all I need to do is feed those data into the program, and then the program will just do everything for you. So uh, that for me disappointing i was i was mm -hmm. expecting something more fancy like you know you do all all the crazy modeling or the or the predictive things that that we learn in school uh yeah. but when we actually do the job it, it 
it's like 10% of what we learn. So mm-hmm. for me, that's not really what I was looking for. And I left the company and joining the ride sharing industry was kind of like more of a luck rather than, than okay. something that, that I was looking forward to. Yeah. Okay. So before we kind of talk about that, wh- why didn't you decide to stay in America? Like uh, what was the, cause I think back then you probably had a one year visa, but you didn't take advantage of looking for jobs there or you just knew you wanted to go back to Asia. Uh, there's a few, there's a few reasons. Uh, one of the, Main reason is I went to the U.S. scholarship. Okay. So one of the uh, condition of the scholarship is I have to come back to Malaysia. Ah, okay. Uh, so that's, that's quite common. <laughs> yeah. The other things are like my, my my parents are here, my families are here. Um. Yeah. That's that's in general why I decided to come back. It wasn't a hard decision. Okay. It's mostly back. mostly a personal kind of thing. Um, okay, so tell me about this kind of luck factor. Like, how did you fall into one of the craziest, uh, I don't know, histories of tech and, you know, and investments in the past decade of rideshare? Uh, it was just random, you know. After I was, I, I left my first job, I was just looking for, for a new job. So I happened to come across a job posting for entrepreneur investments mm-hmm. for, for Easy Taxi at yeah. that time. So I just applied. Two hours later. <laughs> Two hours later, very fast. I went for interview. Yes, very fast. And on the same day, I went for the interview. Same day. And kind of on the same day, I start. And kind of on the same day, I started with the company. So that's was how, <laughs> that's how crazy it was uh, during that time. That, that's very characteristic yeah, of, so that, that, of Rocket, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think uh, looking back, of course, during that time, uh, there was really no chance for me to say no. <laughs> But but the good thing about it, but the good thing about it is, uh, it was it was indeed a really good experience. Yeah. Like like, otherwise I I would I would have kind of left after like a few days. But uh, it was it was quite quite some experience compared to what I had in a more traditional uh, corporate. Yeah. And I guess um, it was June June Chan, the one who interviewed you, right? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> June Chan was our guest on episode two. He kind of gives us the whole story of Rideshare on the macro sense, and uh, part of that story, I guess, is Sicko getting hired uh, randomly by applying, uh, going to the interview the same day, and starting to work on the same day, which is, I think, very uh, characteristic of what June style was and Rocket of back then. Um, and it was, like you said, a very crazy ride. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about Rideshare from your side uh, like uh, at this point in time? Uh, I think at that point of time, definitely things felt a lot more crazy. Um, the fact that we have to educate taxi driver to use tech. Yeah. Uh, the fact that at that time, even the standard ride sharing is not common. So I think uh, looking back, yes, there was quite, uh, it felt like a lifetime ago, yes, yes. <laughs> but it's actually, even though it's just like six years, but so many has changed uh, during this time. And I think that kind of pushed everything forward. Uh, if you look at it, the whole industry. Yeah. Uh, and what about today? Anything you feel pressing that you would like to say about ride share in today's current scene and how, today, yeah, how things evolved? Um, I think ride sharing today is, it, it just felt like something so natural to, to everyone. <laughs> Uh, I think people don't realize the kind of effort that that uh, like we have to put in at, at one point <laughs> trying to educate yes. the, the the drivers. I think you you were part of it, right? Yeah. It was so hard to talk to drivers. It was so hard to convince people to just 
jump into a, a stranger's car. Yeah. Um, people don't know how tough it was. Now it's like, hey, I just get a grab and I go out there. It was so intuitive, but it was so difficult. Yeah, I mean, it, it was... Uh, I mean, and we also chose as a business model to purely focus on taxis first and taxi quality across Southeast Asia are, you know, maybe with the exception of like Vietnam and Singapore was, you know, not the best. Um, and even still in Vietnam, you know, the, the level of uh, education you're dealing with, you know, you have to teach them how to physically use a phone. You have to sell them phones. Uh, they don't understand what an app is or how to use, the, you know, all the, the the functions of a phone. So uh, it's like you said, yeah, it was extremely painful. Uh, and every market was different. In Vietnam, you know, we had to wake up at 3, 4 a.m. every single day, go to the gas station because that's when they change the shift to, to onboard drivers. So it was definitely, it's like you said, something given. Uh, that people take for granted that they don't know how much pain in education, uh, especially as Easy Taxi was a first mover in the market. Uh, it grabbed technically too a little bit slower, but then they quickly overtook everything, right? So, but there was equally pain on all sides or any player entering the market, even when Uber came in. Uh, that's how it was. Uh, so, I want to talk a little bit about the the unit economics. Uh, you know, East versus West. I, I think you know for rideshare in the U.S., it makes a lot of sense. Um, or even like in Latin America when we were first launching, like the baskets. And your, you know, your cut of the commission could actually make a very profitable cash flow generating business. But I, you know, I think, how do you think about the unit economics back then? And even now, do you, do you feel that it's something that makes sense profitability wise as, as a core business? Do you think um, it's just something that we're far behind? It's just going to take time to catch up to the West or it won't catch up to the West. What do you think about the unit economics of right here now? Well, I think, uh, it's gonna take a while. Uh, even I think even in the West, it's, it's gonna take a while. <laughs> uh, like Uber is not really making money, I guess. Um, yeah, I think in, in this part of the in in, in Southeast Asia in, in in general, I think it's gonna take a while because I think we just sometimes, uh, first of all, car ownership is something that, that is uh, given uh, around this, this part of the world, uh, at least in Malaysia, right? Uh, yeah. Or, or like when you, when you don't really have, uh, uh, I don't know how, I'm not sure how, how, how I should frame this. Um, I think as, Mal as Malaysians, right, I think we are not really willing to pay sometimes <laughs> like 20, 30 ringgit for, right? You rather... Yeah own a car, uh, let's, let's put it that way. Um, but of course, from a unique economics, uh, it's a very heavily subsidized market. At least that was the case a few years ago. Not sure about now. Um, but if ride sharing by itself is a profitable business, I don't think, uh, I, think I would think that there will be a lot more players in the market and all the other business line. So that's just a quick take on, on the whole uh, unit economics for, for ride sharing. Uh, I'm not really an expert on well, this. I mean, I mean, one can, ar ar yeah. I mean, but one can argue um, in the West, right? Uh, it's maybe because of their cost structure, right? But I think the revenue is there, right? We're, we're talking literally generating billions of cash. So, um, and I think what we're seeing with, you know, uh, Uber exiting, Southeast Asia and maybe other unprofitable markets is an exercise of just optimizing the costs, focusing on the areas that can posit, you know, make positive cash flow with good margins, you know, where the baskets make sense. And that leads to the IPO, right? So, um, whereas, you know, I think Grab is, 
had to kind of use maybe rideshare as an entry point to kind of build out infrastructure in a broader ecosystem sense for a kind of a platform play. I think, you know, maybe in the West, they can actually uh, use it as a, a business in itself, you know, where it could be big enough. Uh, same for China, right? I think even though China, real, you know, it's just sheer volume, you know, even though probably the margins are smaller, it's just, uh, you know, by by the sheer amount of transactions of billions of people can be comparable to the West. But Southeast Asia, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that it, you know, it, they had to kind of diverge into this idea of a, a platform uh, because right chain itself probably doesn't make sense as a, you know, as something that can be a really a core generating cash for the business going forward. Um, I mean, so I guess in, in that kind of sense, uh, that's why, you know, unless you're very cynical, that's why this idea of self-driving cars is important to the West. Um, otherwise, you never fully unlock that value because it's the business that's going to get chipped away eventually, right? And I guess that, that's also part of why food is uh, kind of the big focus now, right? Yes, for many platform business, I would say. Um, for ride sharing, yeah. they also they are also focusing on food. I think a lot of uh, logistic based company they are also they, they also focus a lot on food. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically, then let, let's talk about a little bit of then your you know, your experience of business intelligence because I think that was your early focus. Um, what, what do you think of the biggest issues of business intelligence Southeast Asia startups right now? Uh, is is there is it something that you know that these startups need to focus more on? Uh, do you think it's really well established? Um, what has been your experience across across you know all three startup experiences that you've had? Mm, yeah, I think I think in in some company they're quite you know data scientists. Uh, in some company they call it data analysts. I think in in general it, it kind of the, the the eventual objective is the same thing, right? Like how do you yeah. uh, apply data into your business decision? So I think me having kind of worked in a, a few different startups uh, across the region, um, different company definitely look at data very, very differently. Um, and it's something that's come as more of a luxury rather than a, um, a basic essential part of the company, right? You need to be able to afford <laughs> a data analyst or a BI analyst in order to do all this um, data warehousing. Um, Reporting structures. Um, just automating everything, uh, right? Yes, uh, yes. I said it, it's, it's more of a luxury to, <laughs> you need to have, you need to have uh, resources to, to hire uh, some, some expertise on this. Uh, then only uh, you, would, you can see all the things that you need to see. So I think uh, a lot of early stage startups they don't really have the, the, the luxury to hire uh, a data person in, in general. Yeah, I mean it's it's I guess that is a luxury, like you're saying. But is there any way that, from you know your perspective and experience, that a founder can then approach it to make it more accessible, especially earlier on, because you know it's just like accounting, just like uh, getting a good lawyer early on, you know, you may not be able to afford it, but, you know, getting that kind of infrastructure in place will save you a lot of pain down the road, uh, helps you with experimentation, iteration, all these kind of things. So is there anything that a founder can do to maybe 
take it up on themselves? Are there any tools these days that we're seeing that just makes it possible? Or do you think it's still a, you know, a luxury for the next, I don't know, five years? So, uh, yeah, I think when I say luxury, that's more on the cost part of things, right? Okay. So, of course, if you have the resources, it's very, very easy to, to get all this thing on board. Um, but what I also see uh, when, when I talk to some of the founders and uh, some of the founders I work, work with, um, having the, the data mindset in the first place, that's, that's what kind of decides the, the direction of, of the company, right? So uh, not a lot of founders or not a lot of um, even like CEO understand the data-driven um, yeah. a, a lot of them kind of run the business just based on like, hey, um, my bank account is increasing. I'm, I'm making money. Uh, my my bank <laughs> account is, is decreasing. <laughs> I'm not making money. So a lot of a lot of uh, founders don't don't even have that mindset to start with. Um, yeah. So that's why uh, a lot of companies don't do that. But in terms of resources, there's actually a lot of free resources out there. Um, there's a lot of tools out there that that um, founders or CEO can use. Um, and if a tech company can hire uh, developers, right? Uh, and a lot of these developers actually do have the skill set to, to set up all this kind of uh, database and, and, and data reporting. So, yeah, like, like I said, a lot of times it, it go back to the leader of the company, like, hey, how, how do I actually want to run, run this company? Yeah. So, so essentially, it really needs to come from the founder, even if they can't build it themselves, as long as they know what is needed, uh, as long as their engineering or tech talent is capable, probably can pull off at least the basics, uh, at least, you know, setting up a system and infrastructure where you follow at least the core metrics at first, you know, to, to kind of get started before you start optimizing. And a lot of times, uh, the, the data is right there, just that uh, nobody really has the mindset to, to, to use the data. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, and I guess some basic skills that founders could pick up early, like very early stage, at the very least, is learning how to do basic queries, right? Because if it's sitting in a database, and you know, you don't need to bother your engineer to write really complex queries for you to pull up that data. And of course, if you have very good Excel skills, then you pretty much can do what you need yourself without, you know, having very expensive tools or building things from scratch that you know take a lot of time and resources away from building your core product. Yep. Cool. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Happy Fresh. So I guess the comparable, and I guess why Happy Fresh started, was it because of Instacart in the US? You can, you can say that, but of course, uh, I think that the founders also uh, have their own pain uh, okay. in their daily life, hence uh, why, why uh, they started Fresh. So yeah. I think the stories that uh, that we always hear was the CTO was shopping with uh, the wife, and then he was like, "Why do I have to do this? Uh, why can't there be an app where it can just help help my, me and my wife to shop?" So I think that's essentially the, the backstory. Yeah, and, and the founders are actually not from Malaysia, right? Or some of them are. Um, it's not so Happy Fresh by itself is not even a, a Malaysian company to start with. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an Indonesian. Yeah. So uh, one of the founder is Indonesian, and okay. the other six, six founders are German. 
So uh, okay. a lot of, yeah, I think, yeah, yes, they're essentially Germans. Yeah. Okay, so it's a, a German company. Uh, and so did it start in Indonesia first or Malaysia? Uh, it started in Malaysia first. <laughs> the, the first ever store okay. was, was in Malaysia. Uh, but the, the headquarters has always been in, uh, in Indonesia. The tech headquarters, at least. Okay, so what was the idea of starting in Malaysia first, despite having like 90 plus percent Germans and then one Indonesian? Um, I don't exactly know <laughs> why. Uh, mm-hmm. But from what I know is the, the company that seed uh, Happy Fresh uh, was based in Malaysia. Um, and a lot of the, the founders was based in Malaysia in the first place. So only the CTO was based in Indonesia. Um, no, okay. That's why I, I think nat- naturally it, it started off in Malaysia, and but the the, the tech headquarters has always been in in, 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 in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess these days, you know, grocery, especially with the pandemic, is more relevant, right? Like the Instacart valuation just shot up to seventeen billion in its latest round, which mm-hmm. which is insane. Um, we don't quite see the same traction for Happy Fresh, I think. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, there's some relation in investment from Grab. Uh, and most recently, they put in another $20 million publicly, right? Uh, and I guess that's based off the traction that they're seeing and the confidence that they're seeing in the numbers. Um, and that's just, I think, because of the fundamental shift in behaviors. Uh, naturally, people you know, are discouraged to go out. Uh, this is a pretty good solution and i've been talking to a lot of friends who've been using happy fresh recently and uh compared to my first experience from what i'm hearing now a lot of things have improved uh in terms of experience wise uh and uh but you know before the from what i understand happy fresh for quite a few years was kind of stuck right they had um i don't know the exact orders per day or if you can share that but it was quite a low number and then it's only until you joined later on and then you know you started on content and you then you basically took over the operations piece. I think the traction started to come in. So what was happening in the early days? Why, why was Happy Fresh for so many years kind of stuck on a low order volume on a daily basis? And then what did you do to scale it up? And I don't know if you could share any of those numbers. Mm, yeah. First of all, I don't think I can, I can take credit to, uh, to, to scale the whole thing up, right? Um, but I think in, in, in general, of course, in, in the first couple of years, uh, when things was was kind of stuck, um, it was mainly due to bad uh, unit economics, uh, where the company was paying too much for for the delivery uh, rider to to deliver um, the grocery. So basically, for every order that 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 got sent out there, uh, the company lose money. So <laughs> when you have that kind of uh, unit economics, where it's more cost driven rather than uh, because rather than uh, demand driven, you know, no upside for um, the customer to have a, a, a bad unit economics, right? Uh, but there's only downside for the company to, to have a, yeah. a, a bad unit economics. So naturally, there's no there won't be any increase in demand, and the company is hard for the company to, to invest heavily into marketing. So that that's why I think in the first few few years it was, it was a bit difficult to uh, to scale up. Um, one of the things that I, I did when I was uh, when I kind of took over the operation part and, and eventually the, the whole uh, country operation is is to fix the unique economics. That was kind of the first thing that 
that we have to fix. Um, yeah. And that involves looking at the, the Instacart model, right, which is purely on demand, uh, which is purely kind of gig economy based kind of uh, yeah. model. Uh, before that, it was just drive. I, I hire a full time driver and they deliver groceries. So that that was not very scalable in in the first place, and it's hard to hire like full time drivers to <laughs> to deliver groceries, basically. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think for me, fixing the unit economics definitely helped with the whole company uh, resources. And once we we have a, a positive uh, unit economics, it, it become a lot easier for us to to invest into the marketing side of things. And slowly from then onwards, you can see um, like more and more people are using it. So uh, I would say that's unit economics is one of it. Um, and the second part is we, we care a lot more about pricing, right? So before that, uh, we literally just price the item like how the the supermarket would price them, right? So that we did was we kind of employed the, the Amazon Amazon way of scaling. Uh, we look at what mm-hmm. items are more has a uh, what we call a, a higher price sensitivity, right? Okay. So like by just like maybe discounting five cent, ten cent, you you basically drive demand that way. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things that that we did mainly to to scale it from an operation point of view and, and also from a demand point of view. Uh, so from what I'm understanding then, when Happy Fresh initially started, you must have been having drivers on payroll. Uh, and part of the unit economics optimization was basically converting it to uh, gig economy part-time contract workers. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess uh, that those kind of riders, did, were they happy with that? Because I would imagine them becoming freelancers. They could almost work for any platform now instead of just relying on a salary and having so much downtime where the cost of delivery was so high because you know every delivery is just not packed. Yep. So I think at that time, um, gig economy, there's not a lot of player in the gig economy for motorcycle players, right? The other big yep. one was basically just Food Panda, right? So yeah. um, definitely it was difficult when we first switch to from a payroll model to a more gig economy model, uh, we lost 90% of our riders. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it was really bad uh, to a point where uh, our revenue definitely got, get impacted a lot. Um, but what we realized during, the, after we make the whole switch is we don't even need that many, that many riders to start with. Because mm-hmm. when we were on, yeah. on a full-time model, um, the drivers are not incentivized to take more of this. But once we switch to a yeah. more paper kind of model, riders left, but whoever stick around, it tends to do a lot more orders and they earn a lot more money. So uh, that's yeah. kind of like a give and take. But, but yes, definitely the, the riders are not happy about it. A lot of them left. A lot of them even take like company uh, property with them and just left. Oh, um, yeah, of course. That, of course. That, that, that's, that's part of the, the transition that the company is a painful process that the company has to go through to fix the unit economics. I mean, it makes sense because um, it's it's free market at that point, and the drivers, uh, you know, 
there's a natural fall off of demand because there's no, no I mean, there's a fall, a fall off supply because there is no demand. But again, like you said, the, the density of the ones who stay probably get a lot more money uh, and it becomes more of this viable model on both sides, I guess. Um, so say if you were a driver, by the time you had left, you know, how much could a driver be making? And was it really like a viable way of life for them? Like, or are they just like barely scraping by? Or, you know, if they could have, you know, a good, few weeks were they really making a lot of money mm, if you are talking about grocery in particular um, I think grocery trend yeah. on a on a week on week basis is actually quite uh, I would say quite there's, there's, you, you don't see a lot of fluctuations in terms of order on a week, 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 week on week basis right so for the yeah. riders I wouldn't say they are, they are just getting by um, for whatever they were earning enough i think some of them if they really push themselves they probably earn like at least 40 to 50 percent more than uh, what a fresh guy would would earn so um mm. i think that's that's kind of the, the essence of the economic right uh, especially in, in this part of of the world so with a university degree they will go be a delivery drivers because they earn more delivering food or delivering grocery than working in an office job. So yeah, definitely, yes. Yeah. Some of them, if they don't care that much about the orders, then yes, you know, they probably just earn enough to survive and some of them would be happy about mm -hmm. it. Um, but there will be a handful, a handful of them who are ambitious and they just want to take as many orders as possible. It's a tiring job for sure, yeah. but uh, that's, that's how, how it works. Yeah, and I guess um, there... And back then, it was primarily just them probably working with. They had you know either Food Panda or Happy Fresh, I guess. But you know, uh, these days with so much competition for the drivers, uh, they could be on multiple platforms and probably make a pretty good living um, in itself. And if I understand the, the the market correctly, there's probably not enough drivers going around, at least for the Malaysia market. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think it's not too bad and i think especially in the, the heyday of ride share you know there was crazy money for early drivers due to subsidies uh, but even now you know if you talk to ride share drivers uh, pre pre covid you know they could still make a a good living and have a little bit of savings or you know sometimes if they don't really want to work too hard they could at least pay off all their living costs just by driving so what do you think would have happened if grab had not invested in happy fresh um i would say the company was still survive <laughs> Uh, but definitely, uh, with great investment, it, it's a lot easier for, for, for Happy Fresh to scale. Um, mainly because it's not just an investment, it's more of a, yeah. a partnership as well, right? Uh, I think a couple of years ago, Grab launched uh, Fresh in Indonesia and also Thailand, right? So I think part of the investment yeah, I think it's less about the investment; it's more about the the partnership that that allows um, Happy Fresh to kind of leverage on on Grab's um, user base. So that that really helped. Yeah, from my from my point of view, that really helped uh, Happy Fresh uh, kind of catapult it at least like a few years uh, in advance. Yeah. Essentially, it's very strategic. Um, you know, it's part of becoming a platform application for everyday life, right? Uh, in the grander vision. Uh, but then my question would be: Is like, why not just build it from scratch? You know, why why did Grab have to invest 
to get this assets. You know, uh, to me, like they were, had so much cash, they could have probably just, you know, spent a little bit of money to get the same amount of traction in a shorter time frame, even probably. Mm. Well, I don't know exactly <laughs> the reach, right? Of course, I, I don't know. I don't know for yeah, that. Of course. Um, I, I, yeah. yeah, hypothetically, I think uh, at that time of, uh, I think it was 2017 or 2018, I think at that time of, uh, at that year, the, the grab strategy was a lot yeah. more different. I think they were going through more of a partnership route, a partnership route uh, across across the region. Um, I think mm-hmm. this at Happy Fresh, there were also uh, some other companies that they partner with. So that's why I think I think it's more of a uh, strategy, more of a grab company strategy rather than like, hey, I know we do it ourselves. Uh, in the recent year, we do yeah. see a lot less um, partnership like this for Grab. Um, mm-hmm. And we start to actually see Grab kind of building things themselves rather than doing GrabMart, right? I think in Malaysia, they also they also have GrabMart. So they kind of do it themselves rather than uh, partnering with, with a local company. So I think for me, it's more of a change in strategy rather than something that... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that that's what I can say. Yeah. Do you, do you do you suspect that the recent no those those past early acquisitions, they kind of took the learnings. They're like we probably could do it better ourselves. Or uh, what do you think? Um, of course, I know from a from a, from a more cynical point of view that that's what we would like to believe in. Um, <laughs> but you know, we we will never know. I mean, me running company myself sometimes it's easy to meet misunderstood things from from the outside so um yeah we, we won't know that's for sure. yeah that's fair okay so uh eventually you left um uh happy fresh uh you know i think you probably did a great job of optimizing it and what you know i guess without the help of grab or massive investment coming in it, it's harder to take a business model like uh happy fresh to the next level right um so then I guess you, I introduced you to Lalamove, uh, and then you, I mean, back then it, it seemed like they were a rising star or what were your thoughts of Lalamove back then? Mm, so yes, uh, there was two startups. And this is 2000... Uh, 2008, I guess, 2008, yes. 2018, 18, sorry, yeah, 2018. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, yeah. not that far. So yeah. Um, yeah, the thing about Lalamove is, um, so at that time, from an uh, outsider point of view, Malaysia was never a very attractive market. Yeah. That's why, right? Like, that's why Gojek was launching in Singapore, in Thailand, in Vietnam, but not Malaysia. Um, yeah, Even correct. at that time, Lala Move has already launched in a lot of neighboring countries, but not Malaysia. Um, yes. We have a lot of homegrown startups that were doing the same thing, but not really picking up well. So naturally, um, from an outsider point of view, Malaysia is not a good place to uh, to kind of invest in, 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 in a startup like Lalamove, a logistic startup like Lalamove, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, as a Malaysian who have lived in KL for like five, six years, uh, who basically lived most of my life in Malaysia, that's something that I would appreciate. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, that that's how I see the whole uh, 
the whole opportunity. It's like, yeah, you, all these outsiders are Malaysians, but me as a Malaysian, it's like, hey, can someone have something like this here so that I can I can use it, <laughs> right? Mm. So yeah, so yeah, for me, um, I think my my local knowledge and my local living experience helped me to kind of understand what what's needed uh, in this part of the world. And yeah, I took on the role and naturally the demands just just keep ro- rolling in. And of course, with with the resources yeah. that Lalamu has, it makes things a lot easier. Yeah. So uh, to explain a little bit further, um, if people are not familiar with Lala Move, they're in China, that's their biggest market, right? They're, they're generating a billion uh, USD in annual revenue. Um, does that make, are they like the number one logistics company for that type of uh, business model? I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put it on the top, right? It's definitely, uh, you know, in terms of like the, 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 you know, using uh, logistics as a marketplace and using this kind of like uh, Uber type model, um, you know, they scaled really fast across China. Um, they are definitely generating a lot of money. And then, of course, I guess they wanted to expand to Southeast Asia at the time you joined. Um, and you know, given the context of what you described, uh, you know, people were not so sure about the Malaysian market. But then I think in less than a year, you know, you're able to kind of get the company to the point of profitability or on the brink of profitability. So what was that experience like? Like how did, how were you able to get so much traction so fast? Yeah. So um, a lot of company, I think at least in Malaysia, they, they don't focus too much on offline, right? Uh, yeah. Even in Happy Fresh, uh, we focus a lot on online. There's very little offline presence. Um, yeah. I think one of Really help with Lala Move kind of uh, gaining a lot of traction is basically the ability to have the kind of offline presence, right? Um, and by that I mean like mm-hmm. all the the Lala Move that you might see <laughs> out in the market, or like the the, the car stickers and, and the, the 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 lorry stickers that you see out there. Um, that's yeah. more of uh, because for me the demand has always been there, <laughs> right? Uh, like people need this, this kind of delivery services, but there's no company out there that has the resources like Lalamove who can invest enough in in um, the offline market to gain enough enough kind of visibility for people to kind of know like hey, or I can actually use something like this for my business yeah. for my personal business. yeah yeah. So I mean, like I, I don't I can't speak to the China side, but uh, we both know. Uh, you know Blake, who was in charge of the international expansion for Southeast Asia, uh, and I strongly suspect of you know that kind of offline mentality. Where learnings that Easy Taxi, the whole Easy Taxi crew took from Latin America in terms of you know in cab marketing, uh, you know using stickers, uh, branding things, because it was one of the greatest acquisition channels for that type of you know marketplace. And I, I strongly suspect, you know, Blake replicated, you know, I remember him talking to him about the early, very early expansion, you know, it's just him replicating a lot of the things that Easy Taxi did. Uh, you know, you could see the problems coming from many miles away because you did it already. Um, and I, I think you're right, you know, I think that kind of offline presence and willing to go to the ground, talk to the drivers, onboard them was probably very critical uh, to make it work, especially when it's not as common as an idea now, whereas, whereas maybe today, you know, it's... I think people know about it so well that you probably could 
get a decent online acquisition channel. And I think word of mouth spreads faster because the network's there. People understand that they're, they're, they're there already. And as you know, they're building off previous infrastructure. There's a product market fit and uh, it's just literally applying what Lala moved product wise. And then uh, I guess because demand was not a problem, it's just a heavily focus on building up supply, right? Yeah. And reliable supply. I think that's something that um, Lala Move was really good at uh, compared to like, let's what say- is that, What does that mean? So I think um, it's just like the, the, the taxi industry, right? When we first started, it's, it's very, very difficult to build up the supply because um, people in general just don't uh, like to use new, new, new technology or <laughs> new, new services. You always need to, th- things doesn't, when, when we first started, things doesn't happen by itself, you need to do a lot of hand-holding, right? Uh, because we, we are talking about starting from yeah. zero, right? Uh, when you have a demand coming in, when you have order yeah. coming in, um, in the very beginning, we need to manually kind of match each of this order to yes. a driver, right? And to do that, it requires a lot of manpower. It requires a lot of uh, resources. It, it requires over-investing into like driver acquisition, for example. So those things are expensive. And it requires a lot of headcounts. So if you are a local startup without a proper funding or you're just bootstrapping, it will be very difficult to provide. Okay, so um, what I want to talk about then is like you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Lala Move had the resources to invest. And I think a lot of people don't understand is like, you know, even something that we talk about with Happy Fresh, like if we we're to restart the business model today, the question is how much money you would need. So like how much resources you know, if someone wants to do a happy fresh, if someone wants to do a lot of move today to get the same level of traction and to be successful, how much money, you know, just to get enough traction to be very attractive to raise again, how much money do you need initially? And where, where does that kind of money go to? Um, what industry in particular? I think every industry has kind of a different unique kind of. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Let's oh, let's yeah, talk right. about uh, Happy Fresh first. Say Happy Fresh. You know, you're going to replicate Happy Fresh. How much money do you need? Uh, and then, how does that kind of you know uh, it, that investment? You know, where do you put the resources to to kind of scale it up to make it attractive to raise the next round? Yeah. So I think just on top of my head, on top of my head, right? Uh, to really get to uh, to raise the next round for you're talking about starting from zero, right? Yeah, we're starting from zero. Like I, I'm a rich guy. I, I see all of these successful startups with big valuations, right? I think I can do it too. Uh, you know, how much do I need to put in? Well, conservatively, I think at least uh, just on top of my head, five million US dollars. And that's one market, or are we talking about this five million can be distributed to different kind of markets as well? I was just say one, like just one market. Of course, if you look at Existing startups, they have already um, invested a lot more than that, right? And I think this yeah. 5 million US dollars, we're just talking about covering the, the tech development, um, getting yourself into the door of the suppliers, um, building your operability, um, your, your customer service, your back office. And I think all this overhead that actually is one of the biggest costs of, of the company. Um, and then I think a good chunk of it, at least at 50% of it actually go to uh, marketing because that's how a uh, company scale around in this, in this part of the region. 
Yeah. Um, and so if you were to kind of do this, uh, uh, in what time frame would you deploy 5 million to get to that level of raising the next round? One year, two years? What are you thinking? One and, one and a half, two years. That's the standard. One and a half, two years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, so I guess, do, do, you, do you think it's possible to go on the other side and say, I'm going to bootstrap up to 5 million, but take five or six years? Do you think that's viable? Or do you think that that's just really not something as feasible in the region? Well, I, I would say it's, it's feasible. Right. Me personally, I would prefer the bootstrap model. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the fundraising model is like fail fast, like you fail fast and achieve fast kind of kind of uh, uh, model. Right. Um, the reason being, like the company I'm with right now, they kind of bootstrap for the past uh, five to six years. Yeah. Really figure out. Like you, we really take take the time to figure out like what works and what didn't work without spending too much money. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the 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 downside of this is, by the time you figure out all these small little things, um, it's a lot easier for other people to replicate, right? And yeah. by then, people can just throw in another ten million, twenty million, and they can probably um, achieve what you have achieved for the. Uh, yeah. achieve in a really short time, like maybe in a year, what you have achieved for the past six, six years. Yeah. Right. So I think that's the downside of really bootstrapping around this region uh, because we don't really... Yeah. Do, do you think that's... Okay. Uh, do you think that's a nature, you know, an, uh, maybe a facet of this region or do you think that honestly this probably happens in Silicon Valley too? It's just that they tend to glorify the companies who can get you know insane traction like exponential growth hockey stick in one or two years and then raise crazy rounds? Or do you think most startups probably should focus on this kind of bootstrap, fine product market fit? It is a long journey. And then, you know, if you do get the right product market fit, then you should probably raise really fast and move fast. Or do you think it's just an Asia thing? It, it could be an, an Asia thing for me. Yeah. Um, because... I think one of the difference between like Silicon Valley and, and Asia is in Silicon Valley, if you can find something that really works, you have another 300 million uh, population yeah. that probably have the same, same background, uh, yeah. same, same, same problem. Um, the problem with South Asia is uh, beside the spending power uh, result in, in all the other market. I think that's what happened with a lot of yeah. even Silicon Valley company coming to, to Southeast Asia, that's what they realize, right? So, yeah, so, so I think that's why a lot of investors kind of anticipate this. Um, even if, let's say, you have a model, a business model that works, you are scaling really well in, in one, one market, uh, a lot of investors will be hesitant to, to put like a lot of money in for, for you to really scale up in other market. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's why, you know, in, in one sense that created an opportunity for SoftBank, right? I, I think maybe he, uh, I, if you're, if you're not cynical, right. And you, if you think he's just not throwing money around randomly, um, you know, if you kind of want to believe into his, his ethos, uh, maybe he saw that uh, kind of like how, you know, the Samuel brothers saw an opportunity to move fast to arbitrage emerging markets, which they did well. Uh, but now they can't do it anymore, right? They kind of close the gap. And then maybe SoftBank saw that this region requires this kind of innovation and capital 
where that no one's going to throw big money in. If I throw in enough money, no one else can come in. I built a giant moat. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think, do you think uh, it's, it's, it's possible to be more, to view it more optimistic like that? Or do you think it's just more random and kind of we work like? Um, I, I think a lot of this big name investor used to be a lot more optimistic. <laughs> mm. I think that's what happened like during our time where like Rocket Internet just throw a lot of money in, software was throwing a lot of money in. Um, I think yeah. right now the, the market is becoming a lot more uh, rational. Uh, at yeah. learning from soft choosing a business model that, that can scale. And even if they invest, uh, we are not talking about like big, big ticket investment. Uh, we, we see like, like smaller yeah. around like 5 million, 10 million. Uh, if you're talking about like a billion dollar valuation kind of uh, investment, uh, we, are, we can yeah. only see kind of more general startups like right hailing, uh, logistic company. So the, the, if you're talking about like grocery delivery and, and, and all the other smaller niche uh, uh, startup, it, it's it's a lot harder. The addressable market is a lot harder. Uh, it's a lot smaller and it's a lot harder to scale. Yeah. And uh, I, and I guess I want to talk about your point, you know, like how, you know, if a Silicon Valley company comes to Asia, uh, it's really not the same as, you know, scaling a solution that will work across every city easily um you know every market every culture is different um every pain point is different country to country court to cohort and i think it's probably the same thing for china right and i think that's been a big theme um probably across the past decade because china has been present here uh but you know i think they have been overly optimistic and even to date you know even coming in they like what you mentioned when we last chatted was that uh, a lot of investors still don't understand the market. Um, and I think, you know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we can talk about this, but the, the competitor to Lala Move, right? When they first uh, entered. Um, a logistics startup yeah. uh, based in, in, in Beijing. Um, uh, it's pretty much like, like Lala Move uh, business model. So I think uh, um, it, it could be isolated cases, but, but I think one of the, the conversations that we had was yeah. like, we have done this in China. I, I'm sure we can do this <laughs> in, in Southeast Asia. I think that's one of yeah. the a, a common perception that um, perhaps a lot of Chinese investor has, or a lot of uh, uh, people who, who are used to launching market in, in China has. Um, that generally doesn't apply. I think for at least for people like us who work <laughs> launching uh, ventures in in Southeast Asia, that actually doesn't apply. So I think one of the, the main difference is uh, in China, you have just the sheer difference in the, in the number of population. Uh, it, it's, it's probably a lot, a lot easier to scale in each single city. And there's a lot of like first tier, second tier city. For The problem with Southeast Asia yeah. is there's not a lot of... Uh, like first tier city, right? And when you go to like second tier or even third tier city, you're talking about like really, really small population, like 500,000, 700,000 uh, people in, in the... So, yeah. so, so the, the same model hardly work uh, in Southeast Asia. And that's, we, we are just talking about population. Uh, we have not even talked about the cultural difference. We have not even talked about the socioeconomic difference across each and different country and different cities. Yeah. Um, that makes um, taking over the more difficult. 
because you, there's no one strategy that that works across. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, I think in that kind of sense, I, I can see why, to some degree, there is this notion of uh, super app. Or, yeah, I guess if you're optimistic in terms of like what Alibaba is doing or other big China players coming to invest here, is that it's going to be a longer term approach. And you kind of have to build out the infrastructure and the ecosystem first, um, because if there is missing a lot of infrastructure, you know, then it kind of makes sense why you want to build this super app, which is very different from the, the you know the West, like the U.S., where you know all these problems have been solved in various different ways, and there are different kind of levels of technology and timing, but more or less the problems are solved in this optimization. Whereas, uh, in a sense, you know, if it, there's so much you know fragmentation in Southeast Asia. You kind of have to build everything together and kind of capture that value as a whole, and, and I guess that's one way to look at it. Do you agree or you disagree? I would agree with that. Um, it also allowed yeah. the company to kind of justify the existence. Uh, I think it's, it's a lot more yeah. difficult to run an unprofitable business for like fifteen, twenty years. Um, it's a lot easier to just like branch out a little bit to make the whole financial look a little bit better. Um, I think yeah. it definitely it, it make a lot of sense to do that. If if, if you're saying that, though, it sounds like that's what food is. It almost seems like the West is kind of having this resurgence of obsessing about food because of COVID. But and I don't know, is it maybe because they share the same investors? But like to make the you know the top line look a little bit better, that's why everyone's focused on food. Different mm. uh, attraction, I would say, for 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 this company. Um, I think one of the examples that I can draw is uh, Gojek, right? So yeah, when Gojek first started, it's purely just you know you can get your your object from your from your phone, right? Um, yeah. But when they right after they launched the food delivery, you know just so that they can fully utilize. I think the initial plan was just to make sure that the, the object drivers are are fully utilized. Uh, what yeah. they don't realize, what what they found out after that is that I think the business scale a lot more than than yeah. the the, the right hailing business. So mm-hmm. I think food is is a is a bit different in in that sense because it scale a lot faster than uh, than yeah. just uh, yeah. right hailing. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So it's they. I mean, uh, right hailing. I guess we can agree is probably not as profitable, especially for this region. Uh, but because they have the network effects from it, food makes a lot of sense where it can scale faster at better margins. Uh, and it's probably a lot more stickier because everyone needs to eat. And as long as you make that super convenient, then I guess that's the theory where it's a, it's a better beachhead to kind of stick with rideshare together. And, and what you're, for that, what I'm guessing, what you're saying is that that's what, is an actual innovation and actual solution to a problem in Southeast Asia, and not necessarily just people copying from other markets. Okay, so I guess for the last topic, um, I would like to talk about maybe VC in Singapore, maybe your views around that. Yeah, so so, um, I I helped one company in in Malaysia try to raise funds before, um, and it was quite, uh, I wouldn't say a nightmare, but it was quite difficult in the sense that there's no centralized solution. You have to go around, ask people. Uh, it's very difficult to even get through the first door to meet investors. Um, and this is starting from scratch, right? If you have no network, no relationship? 
even if you have like a couple of network, uh, a couple of people okay. in your network that can help you with that, um, yeah. you don't really have a lot of like, let's say Malaysian based uh, VC company that can like just position uh, locally. Um, and some of them actually are based in Singapore anyway. So you need to do a lot of like <laughs> traveling and things like yeah. uh, working in Singapore and meeting investors. It's, it's so much easier to to meet investors. There's a lot of resources out there for you to find where the investors are. Um, and the, 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 the startup ecosystem there is a lot more mature. It's a lot more organized in that sense. You have like a lot of co-working space who organize talk with uh, the VC firms. You have a lot of VC firms who are actively promoting themselves to make them known so that you can you can pitch to them. And once you get your, your way through the first yeah. investor, they can easily uh, introduce you to a lot more startups that sometimes it's next door, sometimes it's next building. So it, it's, it's definitely a lot easier to, to kind of uh, meet like VC firms in, in Singapore. Yeah, I think by by nature, um, because of Singapore's reputation, their stability, their their framework of law, all these kind of things, uh, it's where investors kind of prefer to kind of sit, uh, you know, locally and internationally, right? If they're coming into the region, so I think what that's done is, and I think this is compounded over the years as more and more money has flown in, is that Singapore is you know seen as the bastion of you know Southeast Asia where you go to. Um, but that being said, you know. Because of that, you know, there probably are, you know, uh, really good VCs there and smart people and a good ecosystem. But at the same time, a lot of that probably attracts a lot of noise, right? So I think kind of what we saw or seeing now there is that there's a ton of more money in the market, but not necessarily. And I don't like to say, you know, smart money, stupid money, but like, you know, it's it's money where they don't care as much, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, because you have a lot of um, capital that's ready to be invested, um, and all these VC firms are like basically yeah. finding ways to deploy them. Um, so you end up having a lot of this, and, and it makes raising funds like a lot easier compared to like if you were to be based uh, outside of Singapore. So um, we tend to see a lot of yeah. uh, companies who don't really have good good business model. Or, or, or like sound product market fit to to get good funding, right? Um, even I think for a very good comparison, like if you if your company is based in let's say Malaysia, it's probably hard to get your first million uh, first US dollar, first million US yeah. dollars funding, right? Yeah. But but if you're based in Singapore, that's basically like seed money. Like even if you don't have product, you don't have anything. That's mm. The, the fact that there's a lot of fun available in, in Singapore, it also makes the, the startups to be able to access them easier. So then you tend to see like some startups that would generally wouldn't make it outside of Singapore, basically. Yeah. So, uh, and then I think it goes to both sides on the supply side of VC money, but also on the demand side. Um, essentially, they, you know, all these kind of newer VCs, they have mandates and they're just willing to write checks. Uh, that has some consequences we can talk about later. But at the same time, um, 
in your in your in your view, I guess you know, is there a lot of due diligence going on? Because it seems like there's a lot of founders who are not as experienced, who are getting funded but end up getting in trouble. And you know, I think you may know f- from some experiences what that is and what that looks like. And maybe you could share that. Um, I think maybe we can start from uh, a VC a VC point of view, right? Um, yeah. From, from the VC point of view, it's always about yes. First of all, deploying funds. That's one thing. Um, the second is also about like, like making it, making it worth, making the, the investment worth it so that they can spend more time and effort, right? If they, if they just yeah. own like 5% of your company, they probably won't care as much if you, if they were to yeah. own like 20, 20, 30% of the company. Um, so, so one of the things that, that I think happens to a lot of, uh, inexperienced founder or, or in, inexperienced CEO is after they take uh, the, the VC money, they were pressured to to use up the money as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I, I, I observe around the region where, yes, CEO just get pressured to spend the money they just raised. And that leads yeah. to a lot of bad decision that leads to a lot of uh, inefficient use of capital. And from a VC point of yeah. view, it, it's good because right after you use the money, you come back and ask for more and I can invest a little bit more at a lower valuation and I can get more out of my investment in the long run. So I think that's like kind more of more control. Yeah. yeah, more control and more ownership and makes the whole thing more worth it in the long run, right? So I think that's more of like a kind of like the, the dark side of, of, of VC investing. Um, but definitely from a founder point of view, from a CEO point of view, if you know how to manage that, it, 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 you can leverage on all the VC that's available um, in the region. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess what happens is maybe some founders, they're first time founders or first time raising money. And what happens is they might just take the first offer that comes along. You know, they're excited. They could lock it down uh, without maybe them doing due diligence on the VC. Um, you know, and so in that kind of sense, that's why maybe a founder might be in that situation. Uh, on the flip side, though, you know, it's very interesting what you're saying that if a VC is kind of being predatory like this, uh, it only works on the long run if it's very transactional, right? It's like they're inflating price and trying to maybe get out of their investment by, you know, later rounds, you know, whether it be series A, B, or C, whatever, you know, and uh, it's not really about creating value, but it's kind of pushing this idea of it's, it's almost seems like a Ponzi scheme, right? So I guess in, in one element, you know, there could be this t- you know dark side. Um, but I guess to be fair, I'm sure there are other VCs out there who are actually about creating value and not being predatory. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't raised enough in Singapore to know. So yeah, I think that they are um, definitely VC out there who are who just want to create values. Um, I think as a general trend in the region, because when you say creating value, that means it's going to take a long time, right? Um, I think in general, the VC, at least from what we see publicly, um, a lot of VC are actually not too uh, patient eh, from that sense. Uh, That's why we cannot see this kind of behavior. Yeah, so essentially the incentives are kind of wrong, you know. Uh, I don't know where those VCs are raising, you know, from what LPs or what kind of, you know, mindset they're adopting, but it definitely could be a, you know, big negative to the ecosystem. Uh, but like you said, though, it's, it's interesting because 
to a degree, you know, if there's so much money in the market and a founder kind of gets burned by this, is I think you mentioned to me like the reputation is not necessarily ruined. They could actually go out and raise more money and do it again, right? From the founder perspective or from the... Yeah, from the, from the founder perspective. Mm, I mean, there's, there's just so many VC around, right? So uh, <laughs> eventually yeah. you'll you just raise some money. Uh, as long, I mean, as long as you're willing to give up more equity, you can always... I think you can always raise money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so I mean, it's definitely an interesting time in Singapore now. Like there's definitely a lot of money for, especially early stage, right? Um, of course, the later stage fund, they're always going to get funding by the nature of the market. But I think especially in Singapore, if you are in Singapore, you could definitely raise, uh, you have to be careful maybe who you pick, uh, you know, to make sure you know how to actually handle those type of investor situations and make sure you pick your partner carefully. Uh, but, you know, it seems to be a good time if you're in Singapore and maybe to build something. Yeah, definitely. And we're not just talking about VC. Yeah. Right? But if, even in terms of um, loan, it's so easy to get in Singapore. So, mm. yeah, I think, I think yeah. in general, it's it's just a very good place to kickstart your, your, yeah. your, your startup in general. Yeah. So do, uh, for the last topic, do you want to talk about uh, your current business and maybe do you want to promote anything or do you want to plug anything? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so my current company is uh, No Not Home Services, right? Uh, we have been around in Singapore for, for more five years plus, for more than five years. Um, the founder has been kind of bootstrapping it, investing his own money uh, for the past five years. Um, Right up till before the whole pandemic thing happened, uh, the company was already uh, profitable in, the, in, in some sense because yeah. uh, there's a lot of focus that was put into the unit economics, right? So uh, right yeah. now we are focusing more on scaling uh, because like we have a sound business model. The only thing that's left for us to do is how do we replicate this in across the whole Southeast Asia, right? So yeah. That's 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 what is happening. What's the name of the company? Uh, knock knock. You know, like the yeah, knock, knock. knock, knock. Yeah. Our main business model is laundry pickup and delivery. So okay, yeah. So I think I lost you for a little bit, but you basically explained uh, it's laundry pickup model. Uh, I mean, at the heart of it, you have a core business where it's um, traditional, but I think you have created a, a nice innovation where you know you can get better margins because of what you're doing on the back end right um you might not necessarily own all of the the you know the the machines and all the capex and um in, in that kind of sense you're, you're trying to make a bet to see if you can kind of replicate this um and i, I think you know i think it's kind of a challenge because we saw a lot of laundry market players Entered the, they entered the market quite a few years ago, and a lot of them haven't lasted through COVID. But somehow, you guys managed to actually survive. So, kind of, what, what did you guys do that was different from all the other laundry players out there? The laundry industry, in, the, in, in general, is very traditional, right? A lot of uh, the laundry players are the mom and pop shops that has been around for for a long time. Especially if you're talking about Singapore, I think the same can be applied for Malaysia as well. Yeah. Um, and running a, a laundry business, most of your cost is actually from your factory, right? Or the machines or the utilities or the overhead, the rental. Um, so, so that's why a lot of it's, it's hard for a lot of this company to scale. There's a lot of 
it's very difficult for this this existing company to um, kind of replicate themselves outside of their their, their home ground, right? Uh, yeah. And a lot, a lot of them in Singapore actually try to get into the e-commerce part, right? Trying to get customer online, but mm. them being too, too, too traditional. So, uh, what not yeah. do very differently is first of all, we don't own any factory. Um, we leverage on all the extra capacity that all this factory has. Um, that's how we can get like a really good price from each of this factory. And by having a really good price, we are able to uh, provide a lot lower price to our customer and at the same time still make a good margin. So that's kind of like the, the positioning that we are, we are putting ourselves in, right? Uh, yeah. Basically leveraging on existing infrastructure that's already in the market and focus on the e-commerce, generating demand uh, and give customer a really good price. So that's what we're doing. And maybe we, we, we want to try to replicate this model uh, across yeah. Southeast Asia. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's already a million dollar business, right? You know, you're, you're, you know, in terms of revenue, in terms of valuation, you know, I, I think you guys, uh, you know, have set up a very good base. So it's, and because you already understand kind of the pain point uh, and you know what kind of works, uh, you, you know, you, you don't have to worry about raising money because you're not going to die out anytime soon. You have enough cash and you could use it to invest to expanding to other markets. Yes. Uh, yeah, having the, 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 one of the things that, that also to answer your questions, right? Uh, what, what makes us survive during this period is uh, a lot of all this uh, laundry company that, that has a factory or, or they have all this overhead costs they would hardly survive a 20, 30% drop in the business. Uh, mm. A lot of them actually closed down during this period because of the, the, the whole pandemic thing and the business dropped more than 50, right? Mm. Um, for, for our kind of business model, yeah. uh, during this time, we actually dropped by 70, 80%, <laughs> um, but we can still survive mm. uh, even though our business dropped 70 to 80%, mainly because our cost structure is very low. Our model is very lean and, and it's easy for us to scale back. And now that we want to scale up, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it, allows you, it also allows you to just not have one channel of acquisition, which is like this offline location, right? You can do multiple online locations. You could do a lot of experimentation to figure out who actually needs laundry this kind of time. And it's kind of good too, especially for the Singaporean market, I guess, where, you know, uh, you know, high disposable income, a lot of people are busy, that kind of product market fit makes sense. And, you know, I, I guess uh, you have dropped like 70%, but I think by now you've already recovered more or less close to where you were before, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's going through more of a market consolidation because of all this uh, offline shop that got closed yeah. down. Uh, whoever survived get to get more of a market share. I think that that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Okay, and then I guess you have some revenue targets, and then I guess not right now, but whenever you hit those targets, you're going to be raising money, right? Yeah, so yes, definitely. Uh, because we are profitable, we don't, even at this point, we are profitable. We don't need it. We don't really yeah. need to raise money. We don't really need it. Um, yeah. But going back to one of the discussion that we have before, right? Like having uh, good funding definitely helps a lot with scaling. Right now, yeah. yes, we are profitable, but 
once we get to scaling, it's going to cost us invest a lot more in marketing. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, we, we are looking to, to raise a good round after we hit our targets. Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, so I guess if you're you know, looking to invest in, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of a bet, you know, not everyone will believe in this kind of laundry space. They might have seen it before, but, you know, you have managed to survive. Uh, I think business model wise makes sense. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can hit the targets, hopefully you can raise. So if anyone's listening, hopefully you can uh, maybe consider. Yeah. And it's also, it could be the next big thing since, you know, food. That's true. That's true. I mean, it's, if you think about the, the ecosystem of what Grab is doing, it could be an acquisition target. It could be a thing in itself. It's consolidated. And we have a lot of cynical friends about this space, <laughs> but I think, you know, you see, you have a secret that you know about, you think you see this, uh, you've been working on it for a while. So, you know, I, I wish you the best success in this and hopefully you get your target and can race. Absolutely. Okay, Siko, thank you for your time today. I appreciate everything. Thanks, thanks for having me. Hey, listeners. If you learned something or enjoyed this episode, as usual, please share it with your friends and family. Share it to social media to help support what we are doing with EOA. We definitely need to get Siko back on for another round as we barely scratched the surface on everything we talked about in person. I definitely appreciate his professional insights and his opinions on what he shared with his experiences and hopefully it helps some listeners on how they think about startups and VCs as well, especially if you're considering scaling in the region after you have found a good product market fit. As always, see you back here for the next episode.